This morning we have occasion to speak about what C.S. Lewis in his chapter on this in Mere Christianity called the most unpopular of all Christian virtues. So that's exciting. I'm here today to talk to you about the most unpopular virtue of all in Christianity, the virtue of chastity. And to set that up, I'd like to share with you a little story about something that I heard recently. Virginia Stem Owens, a college professor at Texas A&M a while back, wrote an essay where she talked about giving her students, her students who were traditionally conservative, Republican, middle and upper middle class, had grown up in marginally Christian homes. They had the, the vices of college students, sexual morality, drinking, the kinds of things that parents can understand, she said. And she handed to them this assignment from their reader to read the Sermon on the Mount in the King James Version. And of course, she did not realize what was going to happen as people read these words. But she did begin to realize after she started reading their responses that these people had never read the Sermon on the Mount before. One boy responded like this, The things asked in this sermon are absurd. To look at a woman as adultery? That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I have ever heard. The woman was, in a way, thrilled to have read such an honest reaction. Somebody who doesn't even know they're not supposed to call Jesus' word stupid. He was just reading it, and it was so countercultural. It was such an out-of-this-world kind of teaching based on everything that he knew about himself and everyone around him. He said, this is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement I've ever heard. A friend of mine in a coffee shop out there on the left coast overheard the following conversation at a Pete's coffee shop, if you've ever been to one, P-E-E-T-S. A 40-year-old man was speaking to his colleague, a 70-year-old-ish woman. They were talking about marriage. He said, you know, I think that I'm not married because by temperament, I'm just not monogamous. Now, I'm not suggesting that in marriage you have to become monogamous. There are plenty of marriages out there that aren't. But to get married, I suppose I would need to find someone that's okay with that. By temperament, he said, I'm just not monogamous. I know this about myself. I've not been hardwired to just be with one person. So if I'm going to get married, I guess I've got to find somebody that's okay with an opener kind of arrangement. And I mention these two examples because they get at right where we need to be gotten at. And they're fairly indicative of the kinds of teaching that your small children and you, no matter what age you are, are constantly receiving all the time. That what the Bible says about our sexuality and its expression is wrong. That's what everybody around you thinks. That what the Bible says, and the Bible says all this stuff quite unmistakably clearly, what the Bible says about Our sexuality 
the way we practice it, the way we think about it, the way we embody it is just flat wrong. That's what everybody around you thinks. Lewis said the teaching of Christianity is so difficult and so contrary to our instincts that obviously Christianity is either wrong, either Christianity is wrong, or our sexual instinct as it now is has gone wrong. He lays out the issue that clearly. And I think you feel it. That's why we could say at this moment there's so much sexual confusion in the air and in our country, even in churches. Well, the confusion is not in trying to figure out what the Bible says about our sexuality. The confusion is in trying to embrace what the Bible says about our sexuality, given the very difficult nature of it, and given how contrary it is to very strong and powerful urges within us. Jesus says, you have heard it said that you have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Now, this is the teaching of the scribes and the Pharisees, but it's also the teaching of Moses. Has anyone ever memorized the Ten Commandments or read them? Which number commandment is this one? Somebody. Oh, no. Seventh. That's right. Seventh. Give that person a little prize from the Sunday school room. Seventh command. Don't commit adultery. Which was widely understood and uniformly embraced as you don't have sexual relations with someone who is married to someone else. Well, the Bible would take this even further. In Deuteronomy, the whole idea is you don't... You don't have sexual relations with anyone who's not your wife because you might be having sexual relations with somebody who's someone else's future wife. That's why all the questions teenagers are always asking, how far is too far? You ever heard that question or asked that question or thought that question in your mind but didn't want to say it out loud? And the good answer to that question might just be, well, how comfortable are you doing stuff with somebody else's wife, someone else's future wife, or someone else's future husband? Because that's what you're doing. You're not married to them. You don't know. It's somebody else's future spouse. Do not commit adultery, he says. So his first teaching, the, the sort of standard here negatively stated, is that it, it boils down to this, and it's just this clear. And I want to say it clearly so you can hear it. The Bible's standard for the expression of our sexuality is we have two options. Two live, honorable, good, tenable options. You may get married as if you're a man to a woman or a woman to a man, and you may ex- have sexual relationship within the context of that covenant relationship. That's the one live option. The second one is you may manage your desires and be abstinent. That's it. Those are the two options. There are no other exceptions. There are no other possibilities granted. And what's annoying about this is when you look at the Old Testament, you see, well, doggone it, this isn't what Moses taught. And then you look at the prophets and they taught it too. And then ah, Jesus teaches the same exact thing. 
And dadgummit, if the Apostle Paul doesn't also, and then the author of Hebrews, and the author of Peter does the same, and you start to think, what? There's no controversy. Like, there's not even a possibility of a loophole anywhere. Now, if you want to talk about, should we baptize them babies? Well, then you've got some, something to fight about. But the Bible does not give us anything to fight about here, except whether we're going to embrace Jesus' teaching and submit ourselves to it, or whether we are going to ignore it. Those are the two options. So just realize that, because right now we're in a confused time. There are all kinds of variants, all kinds of alternatives proposed. And they all basically have something to do with this. The desires that I have are so real, they must be right. The desires that I have are so real that they must be right. The desires that I have are so strong that they must be obeyed. They must be significant. They must have something to say about me. They cannot be ignored. They cannot be put in their place. They cannot be aimed in a certain kind of relationship. They have to be given full vent. That's why the man in the Texas A&M class reading the Sermon on the Mount said that's the most stupid, extreme, unhuman thing I ever heard in my life. And the question boils down for us when we listen to Jesus, does Jesus know about humanity or does he not? And he's on this mountain talking to disciples who have said, you have the words of eternal life. You're the one who can tell me what it is to be human. You're the one who can tell me the ways in which I should walk. You're the one who can tell me what my desires are for. And so that's the standard. Sexual fidelity within a committed husband and wife marriage relationship or abstinence. Those are the two options as Jesus lays it out. And then he goes further. You've heard it said, don't commit adultery. That's the seventh commandment. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully, or another translation might say with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, if you're reading the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, in the first century here, you would notice a corollary between the word that Jesus is saying, lustfully, and one of the other commandments of the law. Does anybody remember, if you go from the seventh commandment down three, math majors, we're at the tenth. What is the tenth commandment? Do not covet. Do not covet. Hutchinson knows it. Do not covet. Do not set your desire on your neighbor's wife. See, one of the things that Jesus is doing is telling the people what it's like to surpass the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's reminding them the Old Testament has always taught that the the enforceable violations of commands like adultery and murder and such as that Well, those things are forbidden and condemned and prohibited by God. But so also are the humanly unenforceable ones, like what you do in the secrecy of your own heart, what you do in the privacy of your own mind, where you let your desires lead you, where you set them, how you want what you do not have. 
Jesus is saying, look, do not think that just by avoiding certain kinds of things that you have successfully become an embodiment of the law, that you've become a, a righteous person. This is the kind of error that we're all susceptible to. A first century person might think, I'm righteous. I've never laid hands on another woman. A woman could think, I'm righteous. I've never laid hands on a man who's not my husband. But Jesus would say, and it would be helpful for us in our contemporary scene, he would say, righteousness is not just about not doing things. If you asked anybody at your workplace today, if you said, are you basically righteous or wicked? Well, first of all, they wouldn't even know what the word righteous is. They wouldn't, they wouldn't call themselves righteous, but they would say, oh, I'm basically a good person. Pretty good. And then here's how they would define their goodness. I wouldn't hurt a fly, which of course is a lie, because if they, there was a fly, they would probably kill it. But they say, I wouldn't hurt a fly. I wouldn't ever hurt anybody. I never do anything wrong to anyone. And they would state their righteousness in a purely negative way, what they wouldn't do. And if that's what righteousness is, then the, some of the most righteous creatures around are presently at home lying in our driveways. Like our dogs. Church lady's living in our house now. You remember church lady? But she'd be a completely righteous dog. She just lays there. She doesn't hurt anybody. She doesn't help anybody either. She just lays there. She's very sweet. She doesn't lift a hand to help anyone. She doesn't actively do anything. And so righteousness is not just avoiding certain things. It's about what kind of person you are. It's about what kind of formation you have inside you that makes you the kind of person who would do certain things and wouldn't do other kinds of things, who feels certain kinds of things and wouldn't feel other sorts of things. Jesus is trying to get at that. I'm trying to form people here, not just people who say, oh, I don't do this, so I'm good. So if anyone looks lustfully at a woman, he's already committed adultery with her in his heart. And Jesus is saying, you know, the law has always been concerned about these unenforceable things, like coveting. So what is this violation? We've seen what the standard is. This violation that Jesus is calling lust, which is a continuation or synonymous with the Tenth Commandment. Do not desire your neighbor's wife. Well, here's one thing it can't mean, and it's important to say this. The whole qualification of anyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent would just disqualify a lot of the things that, especially you young people, but a lot of the things that the most earnest and serious Christians among us are constantly berating themselves for because they see somebody who's pretty and they notice them and they somehow feel convicted and condemned about that. You know, it is to the glory of God that he didn't just make three pretty people. I mean, really, have you ever thought about that? There's a lot of pretty men in the world. Okay, I'm not one of them, but there's a lot of them. You got, you know, Matthew McConaughey took his shirt off in the movie Mud. I saw him, I was like, dang, that guy, you know, he works out. <laughs> and I think they knew that. That's why they had him take his shirt off in that scene. He's working on a boat. Well, There are pretty women in the world, attractive men, attractive women. To notice them is not to lust for them. To appreciate the beauty of someone, there's a lot of people, beautiful, but there's at least 17% of this congregation is really pretty. 
A lot of you are. A lot of, mostly all. Except for like three. It's not lust to appreciate beauty. God made beauty. It's what happens with the noticing. And the other thing that's really important to say, because here's how, here's how this boils down into marriages, for instance. This is a common kind of thing. Women get a hold of this kind of teaching. And this is certainly geared towards men because they're way more visual than women and such as this. But here's the kind of thing that can happen. Me preaching this sermon, some of you poor guys today, you'll be out with your wife and you'll be at, a, you'll be at, at some restaurant and some pretty lady will walk by and you'll see her and your wife will kick you in the side. Like, what are you doing? Why are you looking at her? Well, can you help if someone walks in your path? Appreciation is not the same thing as lust. Also, the fact that Jesus says that looking lustfully at a woman is committing adultery already with her in your heart doesn't mean if you do that, you should just go ahead and do the actual thing too. They are not equal in their devastation. They are not equal in their power and their destruction of human relationship. That's important to realize as well. Jesus is trying to make sure that people who think they're sterling know that they're not a real diamond. They're cubic zirconia. There's, there's, there's fakeness underneath there. They've got to look deeper than the surface. So if that's not what it is, what is it? And the image I'll borrow is a really, it's not one you would expect. I was meeting with a, with a widow lady the other day that I love a lot, and she was, she was looking at some pictures of you know, women's shoes and dresses and such, and she said something like, the lady down the hall gave me this from her wish book. And I said, wish book? Well, that's an interesting expression. What's a wish book? I thought I knew what she was talking about. And she said, well, when I was a kid, when we got the Sears and Roebuck catalog, now some of you young people, you know what a catalog is? It's paper, glossy, has things in it that you want to buy and own and possess and make your life better. And she said, we would get the Sears and Roebuck catalog, and we called it the wish book. Polly grew up poor. She grew up, there were no paved roads out here. She had no air conditioning. She had no fan. But she had a wish book. And I thought, what a great way to think about it. See, marketers have long ago realized that we're perennial malcontents, that dissatisfaction runs indigenous in our hearts. It's, it's passed down from mother to daughter and father to son. That we're the kind of people that all you got to do and inflame somebody's desire is put something in front of them that they might want. And you say, oh, if I had that dress, my life would be different. I don't say that. But you, if you're a girl, you might say that. If I had those shoes, if I had that boat, if I, if I had that, my life would somehow be different, be complete. I need that. It's going to fix something in me. It's a wish book. Well, here's what lust is. Lust is when you make the world, other women, other men, other things, your wish book. When you start to look around and you start to reorient reality, reconfigure things so that everything that exists exists for your pleasure. See, what are you doing? What's so dangerous about that? You're making yourself God. God has oriented the world so that it exists for his pleasure. We exist to please him, to serve him, to honor him. And our greatest happiness comes when we do that. But when you lust, here's what happens. You have some deep inner ache. 
You have some loneliness that you despise, some emptiness that you don't know what to do with, and you decide, I've got to take matters into my own hands. I've got to take matters into my own heart. I know how to fix myself. I know how to dull this ache. I know how to quench this thirst to be connected to someone else. I'll consume them in my mind. See, lust is all about consumption. It's the exact opposite of love. That's why C.S. Lewis can say, when a man is lusting for a woman, he doesn't say, I want her. He says, I've got to have it. And he says, if you want to tell the difference, look at what happens after the act. It's not that dissimilar to what happens after you smoke a carton, a pack of cigarettes. I don't know if you've ever smoked a pack of cigarettes. You smoke a pack of cigarettes, what do you do with the carton? You don't save it, you throw it away. After you drink a nice cold Coca-Cola, what do you do with the can? It was just a delivery mechanism for your pleasure. You throw it away. And a man or a woman who is who's lusting after something, a ma- another man or a woman, there's a kind of contempt to it. There's a, there's a using of it. There's a, there's a consuming. The woman is just an apparatus. She's just a pair of legs. She's just a body. She's not a person anymore. She's being used to fulfill your pleasure. You're orienting the world as your wish book. Now, if you broadly characterize this as making the world your wish book, that's what lust is. That's what out-of-bounds desiring is. You realize, as a woman, these things can happen to you as well. Dan Allender mentions... Diana. I don't think there's anyone named Diana in here. If there is, I'm not talking about you. I'm under the impression there isn't anyone here named that. Diana wants to have a fifth child. She needs to have a fifth child. She is consumed with wanting a fifth child. And her husband, he, he's against it. He looks around and he says, we already got all these. How am I going to pay for all these? I can't stand it. There's too many kids. I haven't slept in 17 years. Thank you. I like it. I like it when you guys laugh. It's funny. You're supposed to laugh. And she, she secretly seethes at her husband because he's blocking what she must have. She sees that God, who won't give her that fifth child, she sees because... She knows she must have this child so that she doesn't have to deal with. She doesn't have to deal with the loss of wondering who she is if she's not tending to small children. She doesn't have to deal with the growing distance between her and her husband. And so she lusts for a thing. I know that this is what I need to fix me. It happens in all kinds of ways, when we give vent to our covetousness and we start to assume, as we reorient the world to say, I know what I need to fix me. Everything out there exists for my pleasure. For a lot of men, this is going to materialize in gawking at women and pornography and things like that. For a lot of women, it may, it may be something seemingly more subtle. Noticing how Betty's husband brings her flowers, how he speaks to her. 
what kind of life he's given her. The growing discontent. Whether you're a man or a woman, assuming that what you don't have is what you must have and it's up to you to get it and you're going to use whatever and whomever you can to make it yours. It's the exact opposite of love. Which is why anybody in here who's ever looked at pornography, anybody in here who's ever started to daydream about another relationship with, a, with someone else's husband or another person who's not your husband, with another wife that's not your wife, you know that in order to do that, love cannot be possible. You have to forget. You have to forget your commitments. You have to forget your loyalties. You have to forget the people around you. You even have to forget the person that you're lusting after. You have to forget that they're a person. That's why it's very difficult to lust after somebody that you love a lot. Because you wouldn't do that to them. It's so, it's so destructive. Lust is when you make the world your wish book. And Jesus condemns it alongside adultery. And then he goes on to say, here's the seriousness of this. If your right eye causes you to sin, chuck it. Stab it out. Pluck it. Hurl it into the trash. For it's better to you to lose part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, get out an axe. Do a self-amputation. Call old sawbones. Get that thing cut off. Throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. One of the lies that we see over and over and over again is that there's no harm in any of this stuff. Sexual expression any way you want to, it's no big deal. And there's the kind of Expression that, you know who Russell Brand is? The British rocker, druggy, articulate, wiseacre who has a show on FX. Who recently said something like this. And it's just indicative. It's the kind of thing you hear all the time. Jesus was all about tolerance and love and acceptance and beauty. And I've, I've heard people say that four or five hundred million times. And the next time you hear somebody say that, maybe you've said it yourself. He is about those things in certain kinds of ways. But the unfortunate thing is to realize that he's also about something way different. The unfortunate thing is that Jesus is the guy who's always talking about hell. If you chopped out the words of Jesus, then you wouldn't have very much in the Bible about hell. So why is the sweet little Lamb of God always talking about hell? It's worth asking. Why is tolerant, accepting, loving, everybody just do whatever they want so long as they're having a good time? Why is he telling somebody it would be better for you to plunge out, you know, cut out your eye or chop off your hand and go as a mutilated stump into heaven than it would be for you to go with your whole body into hell? Well, one thing it means is that Jesus is taking sin at a level of seriousness that most of us just don't. Although we instinctively know that this happens, it's what happens in our, 
in our world, we all the time change the names of things so that they don't seem so wrong. No college student, pre-drinking before a party, says, well, I'm hoping to go fornicating tonight. I don't think anybody says that. I don't know you young kids today. They say, it's called a hookup. Well, that sounds less bad, doesn't it? Then we're having ourselves a fornication party. Well, those are different kinds of things. I just like to look a little bit, a man might say, gazing at images. And Jesus is saying, this is to me because I know what humans were made for and I know how precious sex is and I know how it's best, where it's best used and express. I know that it's about giving and not just about taking. Lust is about consumption. And love and sexual expression in marriage is about giving. And so when you find yourself starting to reorient your life at anything in rebellion to God, you're on dangerous footing. And I think it would be wise to let you know that you should take it quite seriously. This is, of course, why we, why we say, we celebrate, and we think about and meditate the crucifixion. Why did Jesus have to die? Because he thinks sin is way more serious than we do. We honor sin. I'm not here. Our culture, we, around us, we honor things that God says are destructive. And when you start to realize it, you realize here's, it's not that Jesus is just out to, like some street preacher that I heard of a few years ago, a friend of mine at the University of Florida, and all these students are walking in their jean shorts, that's for you, Hutch, and they're going to class. <laughs> these Georgia fans, they make snide remarks about Florida people. And this guy was standing in the quad and he's saying, you're all fornicators, you're going to hell. You're going to hell. And there's a sense, and we've heard that. When you hear somebody say that, you sense, I think you want me to go to hell. I think you seem like you're taking too much delight in the fact that I'm going to hell. You don't ever get the sense of that when Jesus is saying it. And you start to realize what sociologists and psychologists are are recognizing all over the place. Just this week, Julie Bumgarner, in First Things First, she writes this column for the Times, Free Press. She said a Stanford psychology professor noted that most boys now, age 10, starting to look at pornography. And it's ruining manhood. Men unable to commit men with depression, anxiety, don't know how to be intimate with somebody. It's destroying men. One, one researcher in Canada said, here's what I'm going to do. I want to search for college men. And see what the effect that pornography has on people. And he tried in Canada in 2009 to find a control group of people who were not using pornography and couldn't find it. All the college-age men he knew were using it. And they're lamenting the destruction of men. Well, the same thing happens. I don't think there's anybody in here that hopes their daughter will grow up and be a porn star. And... Any of you who suffer with body image issues? Any of you who have this sense that the world is this great big mirror 
Well, a lot of that is buying into, we're buying into this lust culture that says everything is about the fulfilling of a sexual appetite and I've got to make myself desirable. To be acceptable, I have to be desirable. I have to show myself. I have to look a certain way. And when you don't look at you hate yourself. It degrades women. It degrades men. And so Jesus says, you fight it. Jesus, as we've been saying, is opposed to the ruin of the world. And that's what sin always does. And so he says, don't take it lightly. So what should you do? We've seen the standard. We've seen what lust is and isn't. We've seen what the seriousness is. What do you do? One thing I think is critically important to see, if nothing else, is that if you are alive and if you belong to Jesus, you must be prepared to be engaged in a fight. It's really important to say that. You are going to fight. You are going to have to struggle. The Christian life is going to be taxing sometimes. Here's the idea. You believe in Jesus. The Spirit of God takes up residence in you. He puts His Spirit in you, moves you to walk in your way. You have this new power source. But alongside it, you've got this thing in you. The beast in me, Johnny Cash calls it. You have this beast that wants to devour, this beast that wants to consume, this beast that wants to say every time the Spirit says, don't do it, or go do this, this beast that says, I think you need to reconsider But I'm hungry, the beast says. Here's what our culture's done. When the beast is loud, listen to it. It's significant. Most of the people I know who who are Christians who have same-sex struggle, generally what will happen if, if they don't want to keep fighting, the reason they give in and just start practicing homosexuality It's not because they become convinced that it's right. It's because they've become convinced that they can't fight anymore or that it's wrong to fight. But you know what? Whether you have same-sex or opposite-sex attraction, I think if you've got a pulse in some eyes and you're not, like, depressed, you're going to be fighting with desire. That's what the Christian life is about. The management of certain desires, you don't let them have pride of place. Just because you have them doesn't mean you honor them and cultivate them and feed them. Some of them you starve. Some of them you crush. you got to be prepared to fight. That's why C.S. Lewis in one place says, you know what happens for people when they struggle with sexuality? A lot of times as they pray and pray, they want to be relieved from this. I know many of you do. I want to be, I want God to give me escape and victory over this. And often, he says, he doesn't give you immediate victory. What he teaches you to do is to keep on fighting. Is to fail and to repent and to get up and fight again. It's that which makes you distrust yourself and depend on God. That's the important thing he's trying to work in you. Any virtuous person is going to live by dependence on God. And the other thing is this. Don't think about pink elephants. Just saying this so you can remember. If I just said to you, please, right now, don't think about pink elephants. Don't think about them. Do not think about pink elephants. Are you not thinking about pink elephants? It's all you're thinking about. One of the things that the Bible would tell us to do in our struggles 
is that if you are struggling with any kind of sin of any sort, we're talking about lust here, but this, this is broad, so the rest of this is free. Any kind of sin that you have, if your life becomes about not doing that sin, your life will be eaten up with that sin. It's just the way it works. There's an article in The Atlantic recently talking about the, that show with preacher's daughters that teens who are preoccupied with maintaining their virginity, which they should be, which is a good thing, which is God's goal for them. When you're preoccupied with maintaining your virginity, you become preoccupied with sex. If you wake up in the morning and say, don't look at pornography, don't look at pornography, don't look at pornography, don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol, don't drink alcohol, don't eat a thousand pancakes, don't eat a thousand pancakes, don't eat a thousand pancakes. Whatever your struggle, if all you do is think of it and think of not doing it, all you'll do is think of it. But see, here's how the human heart's been configured. God knows your heart needs an object of desire. God knows you have strenuous desires within you. And that's why Thomas Chalmers once wrote this amazing sermon called The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. And he said there's two ways to get over a sin, over a wrong desire. One is you can be convinced of how bad it is. But this doesn't work very well. You know, our whole medical situation is set up this way. Don't smoke cigarettes, somebody might say. And everybody I know who smokes, they know the risks. They just like it better than they are worried about those risks. It doesn't necessarily work to tell somebody the danger of something. What works better is to have something better to want than the thing you want. And he says that's why a young man will sometimes give up his desire, his sexual desire, because he starts to want money more. And sometimes a man will stop wanting money so much because he wants power more. See, we're made to have desires displaced. And that's why Jesus who made a wish book of the world, not to take from it, but to give to it, says, come to me. Come to me with your shame about these things. Desire me because I'll satisfy your desires in the morning with my unfailing love. You want to be accepted as you are, regardless of what you look like and regardless of what you've done, then come to me and be made clean and be made whole. Jesus would hold himself out to say, if you want to fight against sin, don't get in the ring with sin. Flee from that and run to him over and over and over again as honest as you can be. As preoccupied with him as you can be. And you'll find these desires being fought. You'll find these urges being pressed aside as you want something better. Let me remind you, I can't think of any place in the Bible where Jesus takes somebody who already feels eaten up with shame, eaten up with guilt about a thing, and then says with a poke to the wound, there. Jesus' words are for people who can't see themselves, who are flirting with sin, who are flirting with lust, and they don't think it's any big deal. For those of you who are in that case or those of you who are eaten up with shame because of your failures in this, The remedy is the same. Come to me, says Jesus. It's not the healthy that need a doctor. It's the sick. I've come not to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. He'll make you clean. He'll make you whole. He'll accept you. And you can keep running back no matter how many times you've failed over and over and over again. And we're going to do that now.